The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 195. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart, Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Position heroes. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Panel I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Ta-da! She'll be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the second Doctor story, The Evil of the Daleks. Joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, remember to subscribe to The Secrets of Doctor Who in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. Spotify, iHeartRadio, your favorite podcast app, or on the SQPN YouTube channel, where you should make sure to hit the bell to get notifications. So if you are following along with us, uh, as as you notice our pattern of doing Secrets of Doctor Who, we jump from classic Who to new Who, uh, and we're going through the classic Doctors one at a time, first Doctor, second Doctor, third Doctor, in the order of their shows. But if you're observant, you may have noticed we've skipped one with the second Doctor. The TARDIS has gone off course. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> uh, in fact, we've skipped the faceless ones for now because, mm-hmm. a lot, as you might be aware, a lot of the second Doctor stories are no longer, the, the original videos are no longer available, yep. and we have to work off of telesnaps and audio narrative and that sort of thing. But the second Doctor story, the faceless ones, is going to be available in October 2020 in a fully animated official version. So right. uh, we'll cover that once that's out, because why not? We we'll, might as well just wait for that. So instead, we're jumping ahead one episode, one story, to The Evil of the Daleks, which, as I mentioned, it only exists in audio form in Telesnaps, except for the second episode. The second mm-hmm. episode is the sole remaining of the seven that's available in video form, and you can find that online in various places. And just to give you... And if you watch Evil of the Daleks or listen to it, it picks up right at the end of the Faceless Ones. Right. So to just kind of introduce you to where we're at when the story begins, in the Faceless Ones, the Doctor and Jamie and Ben and Polly, mm-hmm. who are still with him, now they're from the 20th century, from like 1960-whatever. Four, yeah. Yeah. They show up in their present day. And the adventure of the Faceless Ones is set at Gatwick Airport. Mm-hmm. And that's been in Polly's last episode. Because now that they've gotten back to their own time, and also because they're knocked unconscious, <laughs> they end up staying in the 20th century. And so Jamie is the only companion at the beginning of this episode. Right. But we're going to immediately pick up a new companion, Victoria, during the course of this series. Victoria is a girl from the 19th century. Mm-hmm. She is not to be confused with the first Doctor's companion, Vicky, who yes. is from the 24th century. So we, two different people. Vicky is from the future. Victoria is from the past. Yeah. And we met and, Vicky last week. Right, <laughs> yes, exactly. Is what, why I'm pointing this out. <laughs> yeah. So at the beginning of The Faceless Ones, we are still at Gatwick Airport, and it's the the Doctor and Jamie are chasing the TARDIS that's like being towed away or shipped away on a truck. Yeah, it's on the back of a truck. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is a seven-parter, which is kind of long, and normally that is not at all a good sign if it's seven (laughs) parts. Yeah. Because it means typically there's going to be a lot of running around because they're stretching it to seven parts because they have a limited number of sets, so we're Mm going to spend a lot of time running around those sets. Actually, this is a pleasant surprise, because this is not seven parts based on a single group of sets. There are actually three different major locations in this. We spend the first couple of episodes in 20th century Britain. Mm -hmm. Then we move back 
for several episodes to 19th century Britain, where we pick up Victoria, and then we go to the planet Skaro, the home planet of the Daleks, for a couple of episodes. So there's not nearly as much needless running around the sets as there could be if this was seven parts in one location. It's actually like three short adventures in three different locations. Mm-hmm. The, uh, one other thing I want to point out was that this is uh, the end of the second Doctor's first season. His first season starts in the middle with Tenth Planet. You, it's it's not mm-hmm. the beginning of the season, uh, but it's his fourth overall story in, in this season. So um, right. it's it. So they kind of threw this, put this in here, this big story, to kind of, as a kind of capper to the second Doctor's first season. So I thought that was a interesting uh, choice of the stories. Also, this was originally meant to be the final appearance of the Daleks. They yes. had been they had like been really popular during William Hartnell's era, but for various reasons including rights issues, they were looking at phasing them out and kind of replacing them. They were trying out a number of different follow-up villains, the Cybermen being the ones that worked the most. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there were others like the Crotons that we haven't talked about yet that were yeah. also considered Dalek replacements. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, that this is one of the few Dalek stories, classic Who Doctor stories, that wasn't written by Terry Nation, the creator of the Daleks. This was David Whitaker's one who right. wrote this one. Right. Yeah. And it's very, very clearly at the end of this that they intend <laughs> this to be the end of the Daleks. They make uh, it said, we'll never see the Daleks again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So, uh, as you mentioned, Jimmy, the, 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 this story starts with the TARDIS being towed away on the back of a truck, uh, and uh, the Doctor and Jamie chase it and aren't able to catch up. And so they go into a, a hangar nearby. They talk to a man about it. And we see that there's another man who's listening in on a radio transceiver nearby, like in a nearby field near the airport or something. The man in the hangar tells him he's got paperwork ordering the pickup of a police box and tells him it was picked up by someone named Leatherman. and. And then when the doctor and Jamie leave, the guy talks to the other guy over the radio, we, and it's clear this was a setup. Someone clearly mm-hmm. set up the doctor and Jamie to well, basically uh, set up a trap for them uh, yeah. with, with the TARDIS. And ultimately, the person who set it up was a Mr. Waterfield, who is running a business that is a, where he deals in antique Victorian clocks. Mm-hmm. But he's a very strange cat, because he isn't familiar with a lot of 20th century slang. He, like, does not know what okay means. <laughs> and he keeps dropping archaic bits of English that you would expect a gentleman from the Victorian era to know. And so there's that we quickly get the sense these alleged antiques that he's selling are not antiques at all. They are real, authentic Victorian (laughs) items being brought forward in time. Well, he even dresses like a Victorian gentleman. You know, I mean, he's got the whole persona down. Yes. uh, From that era. And he's not cosplaying. And it turns out the guy in the hangar's name was Kennedy. And there's also another fellow named Perry who's working for Waterfield. And they discuss that they took the TARDIS on behalf of their patrons, which will turn out to be the Daleks. Yeah. So Waterfield's working for someone who will later be revealed to be the Daleks, and that's mm-hmm. why they wanted the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the Doctor and Jamie have followed the guy from the hangar, um, and they show up at a warehouse, and uh, they, they, they basically track the guys back to... Well, first they, they, track, they, they find a clue... That leads them to a coffee bar. Is that right? Does mm-hmm. Yes, a coffee bar. And, and that's, an, that's another bit of uh, dialogue that reveals Waterfield as being from the past because he, he like refers to it as a coffee house. Yep. And it's like, no, no, no. In the 60s, it's a coffee bar. Right. What's funny is it's a coffee house again. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and by the way, the, the coffee the coffee bar is not a Starbucks because Starbucks no. isn't, didn't yeah. exist in 1966. It's no, the, no. The the tricolor coffee bar, although they say it tricolor. The tricolor, mm-hmm. uh, very French. Uh, and uh, meanwhile, uh, and and it was a setup again that uh, this fellow in the in the warehouse left a uh, uh, the the matchbook with the name of the coffee bar, wait, waiting for the the doctor to find it. And we should probably explain that because a lot of people today may not understand what, why, like, okay, so a matchbook is, 
A little is it's a it's a lot, about a couple inches by a couple inches square. It's made out of cardboard, and inside there are matches that you strike. And since people back in the day would smoke a lot in public, mm-hmm. all over that place, and nobody thought it was horrible. What businesses would do to advertise themselves is they would have matchbooks that were branded with their business information. So you would go into a bar or a Mm -hmm. restaurant or just about any place, and they would have matchbooks representing that business available for free. And Mm -hmm. you'd take the matchbooks with you and you'd use them. And it would remind you of, oh, yeah, I like that restaurant. I should go back there and eat again. Or it would add, or you'd pass them on to somebody else, and they'd go, "Ha! Huh, this sounds like an interesting restaurant or an interesting nightclub or something like mm-hmm. that. Maybe I'll go there sometime." There were user reward system and brand identification and advertising yep. for businesses at the time. My aunt, uh, one of my aunts, who actually doesn't never smoked, would collect matchbooks. She mm-hmm. was a stewardess. And so she traveled all over the place, and wherever she would go, she would pick up matchbooks. And collect them. So she had this, like, put them in big urns and stuff. And so you could see all these matchbooks that were from all over the country and all over the world. Yeah. Wow. I and, remember people doing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, I mean, I, I remember seeing matchbooks, you know, advertising matchbooks, you know, into the 90s. You know, you'd go to a yeah. convenience store, you'd go to a, like you said, a restaurant, a bar, something like that. And they would have a, you know, like a bowl full of, matchbook sitting there or you could ask for one and they would have them behind the counter or something like that so they weren't uncommon but yeah you don't you don't see the advertising ones really at all anymore you can still get matchbooks yeah in the 90s is still 30 years ago i know that i know (laughs) that but i I would i would say most of the i would say most of our listeners are probably still within that demographics yeah i I would think so we have some younger uh, listeners uh, for sure yes yes. i know it was 30 years ago but the point is it wasn't all that long ago it wasn't compared to we're not talking about 1866 here yeah that's right that's right that's right so uh anyway after after uh waterfield is alone at one point he opens a secret a bookcase to a secret room which i love if I ever built a house, I would have a secret room with a with a like a bookcase with an automatic thing on it, just just because <laughs> that's the coolest thing ever. Uh, I always wanted one of those. And anyway, he goes into the secret room, takes an object from a uh, like a, something that he's going to sell, like a Victorian looking object from a futuristic device, and brings it to his desk. And this his guy Kennedy, this his henchman, uh, is watching him from the hallway. So uh, there's yeah. some, some he's keeping it secret from his employees where he's actually getting these so called antiques, and he's trying. Not entirely successful to pass himself off as a 20th century man. Right. Waterfield then has his other guy, Perry, go to find the doctor in the coffee shop. And he Waterfield pretends to Perry that the doctor is an art collector and that Jamie is his assistant. And he wants them to come to the shop. So this is going to be an interesting moment of uh, nobody really knows who anybody else is in this encounter. Also, in the bar, famously, on the jukebox, is playing the Beatles song, Paperback Writer. Yep. Mm. And this is one of two instances where we have the Beatles appearing, or at least two, where we have the Beatles appearing on 1960s Doctor Who, both of which have subsequently caused rights complications. Yes. Mm. Apparently, in several of the audio versions of the story that are out there, they've had to substitute other music for uh for this mm-hmm. uh or take the scene out altogether speaking of that how did you two guys experience this yes. story because we want to let listeners know how they can experience this story now there are different audio adaptions including if you go to audible.com yep. you can get an adaption with linking narration i have that but i i find it easier to work since it's a visual story to work with a visual medium and mm-hmm. so what i did was i went to dailymotion.com which is kind of like YouTube, only a little sketchier. (laughs) And they have a channel there called El Doctorio, which is a bunch of fan reconstructions that were done by a group called Loose Cannon. Mm. And Loose Cannon has been making Doctor Who reconstructions for the missing episodes for a long time. And they've even done multiple versions as technology has improved and they've been able to improve the quality of their reconstructions. So for Evil of the Daleks, they 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 did a number of things. It's more than just telesnaps. 
which is a frozen image that was taken off, you know, by making a picture or snap of the screen off a home television back in the 60s. They what they have done is they've taken the tele snaps and used them as the basis for their reconstruction, but it's not just that. They're we're not just looking at purely static images. One of the things they will do is uh in these improved reconstructions is add little bits of motion mm-hmm. to what's otherwise a static image. So like if a candle is burning, they will digitally put in a flame flickering. And mm-hmm. just that little extra bit of motion over the telesnap makes it a much greater, much more engaging yeah. experience. They also, for this one, do some actual live footage. Uh, it's presented in black and white because the original is in black and white. But like for scenes where you have a Dalek escorting Victoria down a hallway, for example, they they went to a house, apparently, you know, a, a mansion, or the digitally constructed a hallway that looks like mm-hmm. it's from a mansion, and they got a woman who kind of looks like Victoria in a dress and, of, of the period, and they have a Dalek prop or a CGI Dalek, I don't know which, and they, they, do, they did live footage of mm-hmm. this woman, and they use the original audio, but they match it with new live footage to uh, again provide more than just the static image experience. And I thought they did a really good job. That's how I watched it this time. What did you guys do? So I, I did the Audible version and the, the version that's on Audible is the kind of the official audio release uh from the BBC. It's like like you said, Jimmy, it's got the, the linking narration by uh by Fraser Hines. Fraser Hines. Which is it's interesting to hear him in his native more English accent English yeah. <laughs> yes instead of the Scottish that he played in Doctor Who yeah but you, and you can also hear you can tell that the, the difference of the voice first of all because the recording you know the recording quality is so much better in the later yeah. linking narration than it was in the original show and also because of age you know he was much older when he recorded the linking narration but it, it was it was actually a really good uh way to listen to the story or to hear the story because I was able to do it as I was driving you know I, mm-hmm. I, I yeah, yeah the drive between the parish where I, where I live and the, my other mission parish is about a half an hour. And, of course, that's about how long each episode was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I could listen to one episode driving down, one episode driving back. Next trip, same thing. Drive to Great Falls, another episode. You know, so every time I drive somewhere, I, could, I would li- be able to listen to an episode. Mm-hmm. And that right. actually worked out really well to hear the story and to, you know, to, to listen to it, but not you know, yeah. be sitting there just focused on the story you know, as I'm. Yeah. going along. And we should probably mention linking narration is what's added to the original audios that right. fans took uh, on their home tape recorders. Yep. Back in the 60s, it's to, the linking narration is designed to narrate and link what happens between moments of dialogue. So it tells right. you what's happening, what you would be seeing if you were watching this on the screen. And they yep. they seem to do a really good job of fitting that narration within the quiet moments so there'll be moments where all you'll hear is maybe the dalek moving across the floor or the background music and then the narration comes over the top of it describing what's going on right they do a good job where it doesn't sound like they had to cut a lot of the audio the original audio to fit the narration in yeah or to have quite so many you know very quiet moments you know they did a good job of you know making it fit I did a combination of both. Uh, I listened to the linking narration. So the first one, I I watched the video while listening, uh, muted the 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 one on uh, the reconstructions. I watched that mm-hmm. while listening to the linking narration from Audible. I watched the second episode in its in its telerecording entirety. Right, because that online. one still exists. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. and uh, and then I bliss. I did. I, I mostly just listen to the remaining ones in the in the audible version, and would occasionally look for the photos online that kind of t- showed me, you know, what the different characters look like and what the sets look like and that sort of thing. So that was helpful too. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, there's a variety of ways to experience it, which is which is good. Yeah, one which none of us did was read the novelization. Yes, for, which, which for a long which, time was the only way fans had to experience these stories. Right. Right. And I've done that before too, or, you know, sometimes there are, uh, Audible will have the audio version, you know, audiobook version of the, of the book uh, novel. Yeah. Of the novelization. So I've done that. I can't remember what, uh, episode that was. Oh, it's the Highlanders. 
when yeah. we first met mm. Jamie, you yep. could get the audiobook version of the, the novelization. Right, right. So anyway, uh, the doctor and Jamie are in the coffee shop discussing how all of this feels like a trap, <laughs> which, which it is. And Waterfield, meanwhile, is in the secret room talking to someone. He demands that he be told the truth. You know, so he's someone off screen. Turns out it's going to be a Dalek. So the Waterfield's man approaches the doctor in the coffee shop. They they go back to, he reports back to Waterfield, and the doctor shows up early for the appointment. Uh, the appointment's supposed to be like 10 p.m. at the shop. He shows up early with Jamie. Oh, and we have some, we have some nice, because they're in an antique shop, we have some nice visual humor that was typical of Fraser Hines and Patrick Troughton. The doctor tells Jamie that because they're in an antique shop, don't knock into anything. And then without realizing it, he like knocks over a vase and Jamie has to catch it. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> uh, Kennedy, the other, the other fellow that works for Waterfield, waits for Waterfield to leave. And he breaks into the study and finds the secret room and starts messing with stuff. He's looking for a safe where, where Waterfield is obviously keeping his very expensive stuff. And a Dalek appears behind him. That's how the first episode ends. And it shoots him, kills him and disappears into a transmat, which is what uh, the big device in that room is. And then that's when the Doctor and Jamie show up, and the Doctor realizes all the Victoriana is brand new, not reproductions or forgeries or actual antiques. Uh, Jamie guesses that Waterfield's a time traveler, but the Doctor poo-poos it at this point, which is kind of interesting, uh, (laughs) that the Doctor doesn't believe he's a time traveler. And then that's when they discover Kennedy's body, and oh, sorry, Waterfield discovers. Can, I'm sorry, I'm, get, I'm getting. Uh, there's a lot of different moving around, a lot of different characters here. Yep. But and we uh, can just Waterfield, describe it in broad strokes. Yeah, Waterfield finds Kennedy's body, confronts the Dalek. He th- he clearly doesn't have a stomach for violence and killing. That's actually a big part of Waterfield's character at this point that we'll discover as we go through. He's reluctant, reluctantly involved with the Daleks here. The Doctor and Jamie show up and find Kennedy's body, and it's been staged for the doctor to find it. And Perry, the one of Waterfield's assistants, yes. like, goes to the police. Right. To report it, as you do. And so he's there when Jamie and the doctor find the body, and so they send him off, and that leaves Jamie and the doctor to deal with the body. And at this point, they discover the secret room. And right. There's a there's like a box sitting in the transmat device, which Jamie opens, and it releases a gas that knocks them unconscious. And when they wake up, we're in a new location. Yes. We're we're in we're back in June 1866 in the home, which is clearly a mansion. You know, it's a big pile, right? Owned by someone who we're told is named uh, Mister Theodore Maxtable. And we learn this from the serving maid, uh, Molly. And there's a local business here called Molly Maids. I don't know if that's a nationwide chain, but I couldn't help <laughs> thinking of that. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, there's Molly the maid, and she is tending to uh, the doctor and Jamie, who she assumes are aristocratic men who have had too much last evening. <laughs> and, and when they're actually just recovering from this gas attack. But she's very deferential to them and trying to be very hospitable to them. And it turns out that Waterfield and Maxtable are both here. So we are going to meet Maxtable and Waterfield's working with him. And both of them are working with the Daleks. The Daleks have promised them technology and they are holding. And that's what's interesting to Maxtable. He wants the tech. And he's an alchemist, specifically. And alchemy is kind of part of all of this. He wants the secret to turning base metals into gold. And the Daleks have promised to give him that. Waterfield is also a scientist, but his motivation is the Daleks have his daughter Victoria captive. And so he wants to get Victoria freed, and that's why he's working for them. And the way they got in contact with the Daleks, I love. It is so awesome. They were building a time machine using 19th century tech. They are using mirrors. And they have this totally ridiculous explanation 
about how you can apply static electricity to mirrors and cause faster-than-light effects with the light bouncing back and forth between them and create a time machine. And they were experimenting with this, and the Daleks came through their time machine. And so they have this cabinet in one of their rooms in the mansion that has a sequence of mirrors inside of it, and the Daleks like roll in and out of this cabinet, traveling back and forth in time through to Scaro. And I love the, you know, kind of steampunk time machine that they have built out of these mirrors. It's awesome. And and so I just really love that. Yeah, so the the Daleks, they say that uh, when the Daleks arrived, they forced Waterfield to travel to 1966, so 100 years in the future, to steal the Doctor's TARDIS. So there was a very specific reason that they came here. They wanted to bring him back to 1866 Mm -hmm. And just for whatever purposes, we'll find out. And well, it does tell the doctor he wants him to assist in, in assist in an experiment on a human being, namely Jamie, who is not present uh, as they're talking about this. Jamie's still in the other room, uh, recovering. And Maxtable says the the whole point is the Daleks know that humans always defeat them, so they want to find out the human factor that gives them that advantage and transplant it into their race, and so. The whole premise of the next several episodes is going to be this experiment on Jamie to find out what it is that makes humans so uh, remarkable in being able to defeat the Daleks who should be invincible. And they have a sequence of tests for Jamie. Now, in Mm -hmm. Jamie's mind, he's going, at least the way this works, we're not quite there yet in plot terms yet, but in Jamie's mind, his job is to rescue Victoria. Mm-hmm. from being captured in this tower by the Daleks. And he does not know that there's an experiment being run on him. But the Daleks and Maxtable and Waterfield have arranged a series of tests that Jamie is going to go through to get to Victoria and rescue her. And one of those tests involves a guy named Kemal, or Kamal, mm-hmm. but they say it Kemal on the show, who is Turkish, and he is a brick. <laughs> uh, that's a term from superhero gaming. The brick <laughs> is the strong man on a team. Yeah. So like Superman is the brick of the Justice League, the thing is the brick of the Fantastic 4 and so forth and Kamal is the brick uh, or Kemal is the brick of this show. He is a Turkish strong man and initially he we see him like bend an iron bar over his neck and then shatter a plank with uh, one blow, which was more impressive back then than it is now. (laughs) And he's set up as one of the challenges that Jamie is going to have to face. Yes. Before Jamie faces him, there is this sequence where Jamie wakes up in that sitting room, and he encounters Maxwell's daughter, and then another guy comes in and knocks him out again. Poor Jamie. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and and uh, uh, and knocks out the maid who comes in too, and takes him away to the stables, where that we he encounters a guy named uh, Terrell, who acts very strangely, and one it's almost like he's got a split personality, and he apparently paid this fellow Toby to abduct Jamie, and then denies it uh, in the next moment. So he doesn't remember weird, it. Yeah, doesn't remember doing that. Um, and he he goes like, there's great pain in between these switches in personality at one point demands to know where victoria is then switches back and says oh victoria's in paris i don't know what you're talking about and then denies asking toby to take jamie out of the house so this very strange guy here who is also we'll find out is ruth's fiance ruth is the other daughter of um she's maxable's daughter maxable's daughter yeah Yeah. so she's not victoria also it's going to turn out that uh terrell has one of those Dalek chip things in, in in his neck that sometimes controls him, but sometimes doesn't. We saw the same kind of thing in Remembrance of the Daleks yep. in the Seventh yes. Doctor's time. Yep. In it's interesting. You would wonder. So the Daleks want to test Jamie specifically to find out what the human factor is, yep. and they the and the Doctor and they want the Doctor to like oversee the test for right. them which is interesting 
Uh, they think he will be able to identify the human factor apparently better than they can. It's like, what is it about Jamie in this situation that's letting him overcome the test? The doctor asks, well, why don't you just test me instead of instead of right. Jamie? And it's like, well, you're a time traveler, they, and that makes you too different than the right. ordinary humans. We're wanting to find out about what ordinary humans, why they can defeat us. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, then why don't you test ordinary humans? Why Jamie? And it's like, well, he's traveled enough. He's adventurous enough. He has the, the gumption mm-hmm. To, mm-hmm. to take us on. He's had enough preparation via his time travel to be a good test subject. He's not like some random person who's not even a soldier that we grab off the street. Right. So he's got enough of the qualities that we encounter to make him a good test subject, but not as many as you do. Also, they somehow don't point out you're not a human. That's not what we're interested in. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, at this point early on, this very often that with the doctor is kind of identified as human, but not, but but from a different planet. And it's a, he's not yeah. quite as alien as he will later become. Yeah, they definitely haven't filled out the, the Time Lords by any stretch of the imagination at this point. They right. haven't still even told us the name of his planet yet. Right. We don't know the name Gallifrey. We've never heard the term Time Lords. He does not have two hearts at this point. That's not mm-hmm. part of canon. And we just have heard about the Doctor's people, but and we know they're from another time in another world, but we don't know anything beyond that. So the, the Doctor in Waterfield talk about the need for Jamie to do what he's told uh, by the Daleks, and Jamie overhears and is worried. And this is a very—I've seen it pointed out—this is a very Seventh Doctor-ish sort of story yes. with the second mm-hmm. doctor he's yeah, he's yeah. much more calculating keeping things close to the vast outwardly sort of shallow but inwardly very calculating and even uh be very dangerous for the daleks well, i mean he's plotting their destruction throughout all of this well and he he manipulates jamie perfectly for getting jamie to do the test right. thinking that jamie's doing it in contradiction to the doctor you know he's trying he, to yeah but go against the doctor. Doctor says, well, don't go save this girl, so I'm going to go save the girl, not realizing that was the whole purpose. Right. right. And this was a classic trope of 60s television, using reverse psychology <laughs> on people to get them to do what you want by telling them not to do that thing. Yep. So uh, we meet, this is where we meet Kamel, Kemel, uh, the Turk, the mute Turk, by the way. He, he's, oh, yeah. He, he's also mute, which is neat. It's it, Yep. There's a secret door. Jamie's is brought to the secret door by Molly at one point to begin his test. Uh, we also know, f- find out that there are three cases that the Daleks have brought from um, from Scarrow that contain three basically empty Daleks that are waiting to be injected with the human factor but that the Doctor's going to develop from Jamie. Jamie confronts the Doctor about what he overheard and starts accusing him of being friends with the murderer, because Kennedy was murdered and mm-hmm. he's still upset about that, and a thief. And deceiving Jamie, and this is when Waterfield comes in and, like you said, tells Jamie about where Victoria's being held, and the doctor tries to get Jamie to do it by telling him not to do it. That night, Molly and Jamie, uh, the Molly the maid and Jamie, plan to go get take you know to go get Victoria through the secret door. He and Kamel have a confrontation in the dark secret corridors. He ends up defenestrating Kamel uh, out a window and then but- rescues him from falling. Yeah, so what we really have here, once again, is Gilgamesh and Enkidu at Uruk, because <laughs> the now that Jamie and Kemmel have fought, and Jamie has saved Kemmel's life, Kemmel realizes that he had been told that Jamie was like a horrible criminal, yeah. and that was why it was okay for him to attack Jamie. But now that he realizes Jamie saved his life, he is re-eval- he's reevaluated this whole Jamie is a horrible criminal thing, and when Jamie reveals that he's actually trying to rescue Victoria, that right. cements the friendship between uh, Kemmel and Jamie because Kemmel also really cares about Victoria and wants her protected. And so now the two of them go on the quest together to save Victoria. Kemmel uh, saves Jamie, in fact, from a Dalek trap you know, the a, an axe swinging out of the wall, so only the penitent man shall pass. It's, it's, this very much reminds me of Indiana Jones in The Last Crusade, some of these traps that they have yeah. to get through here. Only the penitent man shall pass. There's there definitely a lot of the kind of the classic movie traps you'll see, you know, the house is booby-trapped with all yeah. these different things, spikes coming down from the ceiling and things like that, you know. 
Yeah. And and by the way, the bonding with Kimmel and the fact that Kimmel then saves Jamie from this one trap, the doctor points out this is a key part of the human factor. Right. Mercy. Yep. Yeah. That mercy Jamie showed to Kimmel then saved his life. Right. The Daleks, though, insist that it's a weakness. That uh, if G- But if Jamie hadn't shown Kemmel Mercy, yeah, he would have died from the axe trap. See, Waterfield and Maxwell discovered the body of Toby. He was the guy who had kidnapped Jamie, who had knocked him out. He had been killed previously by Terrell. Uh, he tried to shake him down for more money, basically. And Waterfield has had enough. That's it. I'm done. I refuse to obey the Daleks. But uh, he he helps after you know, decides, okay, I have to go, go along, continue along, because um, Maxible t- tells him about Duke Victoria, like, you can't leave your daughter. And meanwhile, Maxible pockets a pistol. So we, we get the sense that Maxible is less reluctant in all of this than Waterfield is. He's much more willing to work with the Daleks to get what he wants. He's an alchemist, and he wants that base metal into gold formula. Right. By the way, um, I wanted to mention a couple of Seventh Doctor stories that are a lot like this. One of them is called Ghostlight, mm-hmm. and in that story, the doctor forces Ace to confront her childhood fears in this kind of bizarre, really, really bizarre <laughs> mansion yep. where, it, like, light is a character. Okay? Think about uh-huh. that. Light is a personified character. <laughs> okay. Yes. But... It's the same kind of thing where you have the doctor in this position where he's manipulating the companion for some end that ultimately is good, but the companion, it doesn't feel good to the companion at the time. And then in the very next episode or the very very next story, The Curse of Fenric, in order to defeat an elder god named Fenric, the doctor must shatter Ace's faith in him Mm -hmm. in order to save everything, including Ace. And so, again, he's manipulating the companion for everybody's good, but it doesn't feel that way at the time. And Ace's, through both of these episodes, Ace's relationship with the Doctor is tested the same way Jamie's relationship with the Doctor is tested in Evil of the Daleks. And as we'll mention by the end, Jamie's ready to quit. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the Doctor talks him out of that, but Jamie is ready to quit because of all that he's been through and how he's dis pleased with what the doctor has been doing. There's also, uh, at this point, an interesting discussion with Waterfield and Max- Maxtable about their culpability in the Daleks' evil. Maxtable keeps insisting that they're innocent, that it's all the Daleks you know, are culpable. Uh, Waterfield says, no, no, we're silent partners. We're helping them. This, their evil is our evil uh, because we've been helping. Uh, and this is when Maxtable decides to shoot Waterfield in the back. Yeah. <laughs> thus proving Waterfield's point. Uh, Terrell uh, comes in and saves him. Uh, he's in control of the Daleks, and you will obey like the Daleks do. Um, and it keeps repeating it. Th- then Jamie and Kamel get through a-, a couple of obstacles in their quest to save Victoria. In uh, their <laughs> like they're playing Doom or Kaffel Wolfenstein, but uh, yeah. they they, uh, they and each one demonstrates an aspect of the human factor. Uh, Jamie's instinct that helps him avoid a trap. Their balancing of self preservation versus gaining their objective and planning to lure away the Daleks by, you know, making them chase them, that sort of thing. And then Maxtable at this point tries to reason with the Daleks. You kind of say, hey, no, we're partners. And the Dalek says, no, no, you're a servant. We are the masters. Yeah. And and this is where we find out about the alchemy motivation. And the Daleks have a secret and it's going to be something uh he doesn't want to know. Like, we'll give you we'll give you the secret. This is this whole thing. There's a secret coming for you. We'll reveal it. And it's going to be yeah. something he doesn't He's yeah. not going to lie. <laughs> so they eventually get into the room that where Victoria, uh, Camille, and Jamie get into the room where Victoria is being held and barricade themselves in and realize there's no way out, <laughs> as yeah. far as they know. Meanwhile, the doctor encounters a grumpy Terrell in the, the original room, the trophy room. And despite Terrell's clear indication that he's not very sociable, the doctor engages them in, and goads him. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm interested in you, even though if you're not interested in me. And uh, the doctor has noticed that Terrell hasn't eaten or drink, drunk anything and that any metal that he touches becomes magnetic. So there's something obviously weird with Terrell. And after the doctor leaves, the Terrell tries to drink. Like, oh, why am I not drinking? And But he hears a voice and said, obey, obey. And you have this voiceover of the Daleks. 
So obviously mm-hmm. he's in their control. Maxtable hypnotizes Maid Molly with a swinging jewel because that works, right? That's how you do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it turns yeah. out that he's trying to tell that she only dreamed hearing Victoria's voice and Victoria is really in Paris. It turns out that um, the way that he captured Victoria for the Daleks was he hypnotized her. The doctor then reveals that uh, after the experiment, he's imprinted Jamie's positive emotions, the human factor, into the three positronic brains of the, the Daleks. And, and that makes no sense because a positronic brain is a term introduced by Isaac Asimov for the brain of a robot, <laughs> and the Daleks are not robots. They have perfectly organic brains in the Khaled mutants inside them. Right. right. But the doctor has identified the human factor as including courage, pity, chivalry, and friendship, the best parts of human nature, and he implants it in the Daleks, and hopes that it will drive them insane. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so we begin to see that the Doctor has not been, and we the viewer have known this all along, presumably, but the Doctor is actually working against the Daleks. And this means, and now that we've seen what they wanted to do with the human factor to put it into Daleks, that makes this the 1960s equivalent of the Daleks take Manhattan and evolution of the Daleks. Mm-hmm. Only I like it a lot better this time around. <laughs> than, the visual is the best. Yeah, yeah. than Dalek Sec. Because yeah. in, in the modern version, we get this Dalek human hybrid looking guy with the stupid tentacles coming out of his head. And a really bad accent. <laughs> and really bad acting. And it's, it, it's just comical in a way that I don't think works. Here, it's comical in a way I do think works, yeah, because right. we have these normal Daleks. I mean, they look like normal Daleks. They, they don't look any different other than their color coding. And they become childlike. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and this is the, the episode five into six cliffhanger where they're, they seem to be menacing the doctor, but really they're taking him for a ride. Yeah. And they start spinning around. <laughs> And they're playing a game. Apparently, there's there are children's games in England called Trains, which I guess is some kind of follow the leader, mm-hmm. and another called Roundabout, which is kind of like spinning around. And they're all joining in, and they've got the doctor like kind of up on one of the Daleks, and they're they're leading him. They're playing trains with him, and they're spinning around, and he's getting dizzy, <laughs> and also he chalks or marks each one of them with a different symbol from the Greek alphabet. And when they ask why he's done this, he says he's given them names, Alpha, Beta, or Beta, as they say, and Omega. And they start chanting the names he's given them. Friend is, don't you? It's somebody who, who likes you, who, who wants to, to help you and, and share with you. There we are. <clears throat> what have you done? I have given you all names. Alpha... Beta and Omega. Alpha. Yes. Beta. Yes. Omega. Alpha, Beta, Omega. Alpha, Beta, Omega. Yes, yes, yes. Now, this is Jamie and I'm Doctor. We are friends. Friends. Just preceding this, there is a, there's this great moment, another opportunity for Fraser Hines to to do some physical acting mm-hmm. because last we saw he was in that room with Victoria and Kimmel and Terrell comes in through a secret passage and grabs Victoria and takes her away and they chase him. They follow him back into the trophy room where he and Terrell end up in a sword fight. And of course, let's yeah. remember Jamie is from the 18th century. He is, he is a swordsman. <laughs> he's, mm-hmm. he, they, he was at the battle of Culloden. So he knows what he's doing with the sword. Apparently, Terrell does too. He he fought at the I think at the Crimea. Crimean, was, Crimean. Yeah. and that's one thing. Uh, the in the commentary, Fraser Hines specifically says, you know, the Scottish Highlander fighting this Crimean soldier. You yes, know, that that you know these so these are two of the best swordsmen that you could have that are going at it. This isn't some you know wimpy fight. This is you know a real right real deal. Now, eventually, uh, Terrell collapses. The doctor comes in and. Uh, the, the doctor removes the mind control box from Terrell. So he sees that the Daleks have been controlling him. Victoria, meanwhile, is unconscious in the lab uh, when Kimmel finds her. That's when a Dalek 
comes in and orders Camel to carry her into the time cabinet. So we're now moving from Victorian England to Scarrow. And Jamie here is angry at the doctor. He's still angry for his seeming callousness against him. He's, this is where he says he's done traveling with him. But the do- doctor tells him, no, no, the real experiment, I wasn't experimenting you. The real experiment was the three Daleks. And at, you know, this is where they come out of their cases and he calls them friends. And they have that whole uh, episode where they act like children. So they are now going to go to Scarrow they, as we enter into the sixth episode of the, of the series. The Doctor and Jamie go along in search of Victoria as Waterfield and Maxtable come in. A Dalek tells Maxtable to bring Jamie and the Doctor to the Daleks. Waterfield and Maxtable fight, and Maxtable discovers the Daleks actually have a plan to destroy his house. They set an explosive up, and the Doctor and Jamie come back, and they discover the bomb. And they can't stop the bomb. And so they end up, all, in order to survive, all, all the servants have left the house. We've been told that, so we, we're clear that mm-hmm. Molly is safe. <laughs> in order to, and so is Ruth. And so in order to survive, they have to go through the Transmat time machine in order to get away just in time. So that brings us to Scarrow. It's cool when we get to Scarrow. The sets look really nice. They, they look, you know, different and futuristic. And we get to see different types of Daleks, including the Emperor Dalek, which we have see, which we see here for the very first time. Yes, yeah. There's a Emperor Dalek. There's Black Daleks, which are some sort of uh, I don't know the middle management of Daleks. Apparently, <laughs> they're, they're the officers. The white Daleks are the enlisted. The black Daleks are the officers. There you go. No, <laughs> uh, they're in a. They're all in a cell. Maxible shows up with a Dalek, and he's completely unsympathetic because he's about to get what he's been aiming for all this time. The uh, the doctor and Jamie and Waterfield, meanwhile, are are outside the Dalek city. They're not in the cell. They and they they're in a desert, and they find a tunnel into the city. And this is where Maxible learns where he really stands with the Daleks. That they're they're going to double cross him. They're not going to give him what he's asking for. Then, meanwhile, the three Daleks with the human factor, including Dalek Omega, they're been just put into general population, and they've been given work to do, and. A black Dalek stops Omega, who explains the doctor gave him a name and is his friend. And so the the Daleks know that something's wrong with, with these three mm-hmm. uh, uh, human-facted Daleks. They also, like, resist. They're, like, they're being told to to do this work. And in a childlike way, they're like, why? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Why? Gosh, that took me back. <laughs> I've heard that a few times. <laughs> Just obey. 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 The, and the, the doctor uh, do- even plays it up later on, where he gets them. He keeps asking them why, and they immediately ask, you know, answer, do the same thing. He goes why, 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 why? <laughs> right. Um. So the uh the the Omega shows up to lead the doctor to safety, and um. But but then it turns out it's not really Omega. Uh, it's one of the other uh, real Daleks who, and the doctor ends up shoving it off the ledge in this tunnel because it's it wasn't the 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 real Omega. So it, it first it seems like oh the doctor's being so cruel and arbitrary, uh, but it he was he sniffed out the trap. But they still take him to the Emperor Dalek. Yes. And at this point, we have a great twist. The yes. great twist is by identifying the human factor that has enabled the Daleks to identify the Dalek factor, <laughs> which they're now going to share with everybody else. And right. so by by working against the Daleks all this time, the Doctor has actually fallen into their trap and helped them. Right. Mm-hmm. They're going to turn the humans, and instead of turning the Daleks into humans, the, the Daleks will turn humans into Daleks. And you want, they're going to spread it throughout all of history, the history of Earth, using the Through TARDIS. The TARDIS. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Maxtable is convinced that the tra- transmutation of metal into gold is possible. Is, okay. is it technically? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. All you got to do is get a cyclotron and bombard the right elements with alpha particles to jack up their atomic numbers until they are either gold or above gold and something that will decay back into gold. Yeah. It's trickier than you might think. The The classic lead into gold transformation uh-huh. would actually be really hard because right. lead is element 82 and gold is only element 79. And so that means you somehow need to knock three protons out of of lead to make it gold. Right. 
So it, it's not a question of adding protons, which is fairly easy via a cyclotron. Mm-hmm. But hypothetically, I guess you could irradiate lead to the point it becomes something higher that will fission into gold. <laughs> there, the actual name for this process is chrysopoeia, based on chusos, which is the Greek word for gold, and poiein, which is the verb for to make. So chrysopoeia is making gold, and it is possible. So the alchemists were right about that. You can turn base metal into gold. It's just the classic lead-to-gold transformation would be way hard because it would involve taking protons out of lead. The, the, the obvious hope of having you know using lead-to-gold was lead was such a common, and still is, a very common metal that was easily achieved. So if you could just take this very common metal and turn it to gold, well, hey, all the better. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, my guess is it's not economically feasible to turn other metals into gold. No, it's cheaper just to go dig up new gold. <laughs> right. There's still lots out there, yeah. And, and frankly, gold really doesn't have much intrinsic value. Yes. People thought it did because it was rare, but it was the scarcity that created its value as a as a medium of exchange. It doesn't have a lot of intrinsic value, although you can make pretty jewelry out of it and use it in certain electronics applications. Yeah. It's actually used quite widely for you know, computers and things like that, where yeah. maybe copper might not work as well. And it has promising uh it has promise as a cancer treatment. Ooh. Because you inject a tumor with gold particles and then irradiate it and the gold particles will channel will cook the tumor but not the surrounding cells. Yep. Huh. And of course, it could also be used for uh, currency with latinum. <laughs> there mm-hmm. you go. <laughs> and that's another universe. So the uh, the Daleks, meanwhile, are working. Um, they have an experiment room next to the cell where they're keeping the, the humans. And uh, they demonstrate to Maxtable how the machine turning iron into gold. And they said, well, you go get it. It's all yours. But as he steps into the room, he steps through this arch and it... Uh, it he's get paralyzed something it's it, the machine paralyzes him and then he's injected essentially here with the dalek factor becomes a human dalek uh yeah. he's a, zo- a zombieish dalek and and we've seen men like that before including all the way back in um the dalek invasion of earth susan's last story mm-hmm. where there were dalek men right right uh they keep trying to perfect this whole process so that, that night, Maxtable comes back to the cell and hypnotizes the sleeping doctor to follow him into the room next door where the Dalek factor machine is supposed to work on him. I, I want to comment on a couple of aspects of character development that have occurred here. Mm-hmm. One of them is once they were put in the cages on Scaro, Victoria starts displaying companion-like qualities. She, for example, tells uh, Kemmel rather preposterously that she will protect him. Yeah. <laughs> and right, right. It's like she has no ability to protect Kemmel. Kemmel is the brick. He's yeah. the strong man. But the fact she ma- even makes that statement suggests that she has the gumption needed to be a companion, which is what she's going to end up being. And so we see her moving into that role. Also, the doctor has some interesting character development. Now, Jamie's had some with his relationship with the doctor being tested and with the doctor showing us full Columbo mode here where he's pretending to do one thing but innocently but is really doing something else. But, but also, once the doctor realizes what the Daleks really want to you know, impregnate the human race all over the place throughout space and time with the Dalek factor— He's willing, it becomes clear in conversation, he is willing to sacrifice all of the humans on Scarrow. Yeah. Everybody. Victoria, Waterfield, Maxtable, Jamie, himself. He's willing to sacrifice everybody in order to stop the Dalek's plan. He also suggests that if possible, he would like to save them and might take them to another universe which is an interesting statement, although it might not mean then what it means today, because galaxies for a time were referred to as island universes, Mm -hmm. and this could be a holdover of that usage. Or, he says, I might take them to my planet, which is a fascinating thing for him to drop at this moment, because we've never learned about his planet before. 
Right. Right. So at this point, the doctor is pretending that he's been made into a human Dalek. It doesn't work on him because he's not human, yep. clearly. And the doctor does something to the machine. He basically swaps it out so that the, the, the Daleks who pass through the machine will be injected with the human factor instead of humans being injected with the Dalek factor. Now, Jamie and the others don't know whether they can trust the doctor or not, uh, or if it's another trick. But Jamie makes the point because he wants them to go through the through the arch now that yep. it's been fixed. Yeah, and Jamie makes the point they could have pushed us through that arch any time they wanted. Right, mm-hmm. they don't need to trick them. Uh, the Doctor then tells the Dalek Emperor that to root out the human factor Daleks from among them, they all the Daleks must pass through the Dalek factor archway. And so mm-hmm. the. Mm-hmm. The, the, we have this great moment where all these Daleks are going through and they're becoming like all these dizzy, you know, wee spinning in circles. Dizzy Dalek. Dalek. Dizzy Daleks. So an unchanged Dalek tries to order them to get back to work, and they all ask why, 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 why ask why? Drink mud dry, why? Yeah, <laughs> this, this is this is where the doctor plays off it too, because you can hear him start saying, "Well, why, why?" And of course, they immediately <laughs> yeah. respond after him, "Why, why, 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 yes. why?" Yeah. Uh, we have a Dalek and Dalek violence. The the rebels go to attack the emperor. I Civil will obey, war. but not without question. Is the uh, is what they say. Um. Yeah, and you wa- can tell how you can tell how they've been humanized because humans have that attitude. Humans are willing to obey; they're not total rebels. But you got to mm-hmm. give them a reason. That's right. Waterfield has a character moment here where he decides, like, no, now I've got to help the doctor. I've I can no longer stand by. I've got to be willing to sacrifice myself. Um, he 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 goes to help the doctor. He gets shot saving the doctor. Like he jumps in yep. front of the doctor, mm-hmm. and uh, as he dies, he asks the doctor to look after Victoria. So this is where uh, Victoria is becomes a companion. A huge fight breaks out in the Emperor's control room. There's a big explosion. As the others are escaping on a on a ledge over a chasm, this is when Maxtable, Dalek Maxtable, shows up, attacks Kemmel, and throws him off a ledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is really very... If you watch the adaptation uh, that's based on the original, the telesnaps, this is really apocalyptic. I mean, this was mm-hmm. a big set piece production watching scaro fall apart right it's very apocalyptic the emperor is warning of the dalek race dying out completely and the city explodes and it's really very dramatic visually and otherwise i want to give them their props this was an intense scene and some of the original footage of the dalek apocalypse survives so there's actually some motion picture footage of this and it's it's very impressive and as we mentioned, this was meant to be the um, last appearance of the Daleks, and it was until the third Doctor's time. Mm-hmm. So for a number of years, this was the last one, and it's kind of an ironic ending for the Daleks with the introduction of the human factor being their downfall, because that's what causes the Civil War. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, the Doctor does say, we've seen the last of the Daleks forever. Uh, and uh, and that's that's where we end the the episode. Do you, any uh, last comments or notes on this uh, story from you, Father Corey? No, it was it was a fun story to to listen to. I really enjoyed it. You know, like I said, you know, driving or whatever. But it was it was fun to to listen to and hear the diff, all the different because it does keep as you, you know you can notice from what you're say, how you're saying it, Dom. It keeps moving. This yes. is not a story that. We have lots of corridors that they're running through. There's some of that, but it fits the story and it's not overextended. Right. Jimmy? Uh, no, I just, I really enjoyed this one. I thought this was a, a good Patrick Troughton story. The fact it was seven episodes, you know, would ordinarily be deterring, but it's really like three mini stories set in different locations. Yeah. Definitely seek it out. Yeah. I also forgot to mention that we get to see, we get to hear the the doctor playing his recorder as he's thinking uh, yes yes that's right there's a, there's a scene of that all right great so that's the evil of the daleks we do have a little bit of feedback we want to cover before we finish up uh we got an email from jonathan who writes uh i have a bit of a bone to pick he he he, he started by saying he liked uh, the secrets of doctor so i want to give him props for that he did not yeah. just write to complain 
<laughs> but he but he does uh, <laughs> say I have a bone to pick with you uh, regarding the the uh, your constant thrashing of the sixth Doctor. He's obviously not to everyone's taste, but as the Doctor I grew up with, I feel I should defend him, even if just a little. My main gripe is the claim that was made a couple or three times that because of this serial in Baker's first season, ratings were terrible, and the BBC decided to put it on hiatus. However, the evidence for that is not forthcoming. In fact, the ratings for season 22 were pretty much on par with Davison's last two seasons, and even better than some of Tom Baker's. And he gives us some reference links. The reason for the hiatus, according to Howe and Walker's Doctor Who, the television companion, was not, as the BBC reported, the increasing violence or poor ratings, but a way to save money. It was only after the hiatus that ratings were poor, and they began poor and stayed poor, despite the Sixth Doctor becoming a nicer fellow. I I want to say that I've I, I've always tried to make it clear my complaints with the Sixth Doctor are not with Colin Baker. Right. They're with the way he's written in the television stories. Uh, now, if he's your first Doctor, I totally understand. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, first impressions shape uh, a person's perception of the show and set expectations for, oh, you know, can I like this or not? What's it going to be like? So I and I don't I don't judge anybody for liking the Sixth Doctor. I like the Sixth Doctor. I like mm-hmm. the Sixth Doctor better in what they've given Colin Baker to do in Big Finish, right, because right. the writing for Big Finish is much better than the writing was during the television version of this. But even then, there when when he's not strangling Perry, <laughs> there are there there are things where I I like what Colin Baker is able to do with the part. Yeah. I don't recall myself ever saying that it got canceled or put on a hiatus because the ratings were bad. I mean, I might have said that, but that's not what would that's not what I remember. What I remember is it got put on a hiatus because it was an it was apparently an attempt to cancel the show without saying we're canceling mm-hmm. it because the higher-ups at the Beeb didn't like the show. They just right. were prejudiced against science right. fiction and didn't want it at all. Well, there was there was one or two. I can't remember the names, but there were one or two in particular who were uh, very much against the show. And you know, I'm not the biggest fan of John Nathan Turner by any stretch of the imagination. Right. But he uh, he fought really hard to keep Doctor Who going because some of these these higher ups we would have never gotten Sylvester McCoy if they had their way. There would right. just never right. been a seventh Doctor. It would have it, ended after Colin Baker. So. It, I mean, it, it was it was a fight throughout, and it, in this period, and and as many mistakes as John Nathan Turner made, and they are legion, he kept the show alive because they were willing to cancel it. He was trying to hand the show off to another showrunner, and so he could move on in his for good of his career to yep. another show. And they they couldn't find another showrunner, and he said, "Well, I want to move on," and they said, "Okay, fine, we'll cancel it then." Right, yeah. and he stayed on the show to keep it alive. Well, and I, I saw an interview or a couple of interviews. It was, I think, it's part of the the Seventh Doctor box set or something like that, where they talk about Sylvester McCoy coming on, and John Nathan Turner was actually making plans to move on to another show. I mean, he was actively as soon as Colin Baker's time was up, he was done. He was going somewhere else, and they said, "No, you're going to have to keep going with Doctor Who, or nothing, or, or nothing." nothing. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, Jonathan, for for the, your feedback. I yeah. really appreciate it. Uh, another piece of feedback, this time from Ted on Facebook, who responding to our episode uh, 189 on the Happiness Patrol and the Seventh Doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says, my first thought when I watched this episode, it reminded me of Smile for, during Peter Capaldi's time as the Doctor, the one with uh, uh-huh. Bill, uh, yep. uh, where with being the, sad was a death sentence. With the emoji bots. <laughs> yes, the emoji bots. Uh, and I then forgot about said, that one. Yeah, it was very, the similarities are interesting. Uh, when I saw the Candyman, I was reminded of the characters that Sid and Marty Croft cr- uh, created, like H.R. Puff and stuff. It, <laughs> it is very much from that era. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. So. I got my own, I ordered my own licorice all sorts. And uh-huh. when I got them, I may I used toothpicks to make my own Candyman, <laughs> and I took took a picture of it. Maybe we can share that and you know, link to that in the show notes or something. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Uh, but so thank you, Ted, for your feedback. That is greatly appreciated. Uh, oh, so, and then I then I ate him. Yeah, <laughs> of course, of course. I'm not uh, letting licorice all sorts go to waste. No. Yeah, exactly. All right, uh, let's wrap things up there. We want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including John B., Nathaniel S., 
Natalie A., David G. N., Fadi N. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of The Evil of the Daleks? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or sending an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 11th Doctor story, Vincent and the Doctor. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me in sharing the Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Father Corey Stiga, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, me, foreign? You're the one that's foreign. I'm Scottish. Right. This is going to be fun.